Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Deadly Diocese early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Whenever we had momentum, within a couple of weeks, we'd get, I'd get a death threat or something that could be construed as a death threat. Like a, a letter would show up in the mailbox that hadn't been mailed. Somebody clearly physically was at my house and dropped it in the mailbox because there was no postmark on it or things like that. And they would be little notes like, uh, like stop digging. Or one of them, shortly after the exhumation, when it became apparent that I was involved, Father Rob was involved after his, ex- after his exile. I get, there was a three by five card that showed up in my mailbox that said, stop digging. And that's all it said. Are you serious? Yeah. There is an evil that exists on God's green earth. It lingers in the darkness and lives in the shadows of the setting sun. Pope Paul VI famously referred to this evil as smoke when he said, the smoke of Satan has entered the church. I think that analogy fits. The smoke of Satan creeps unintelligently from shadow to shadow, searching for a lost soul or a weak mind to infect. It's been said that the diabolical can infiltrate the biological, taking hold of a self-centered man, even a man of the cloth, if he isn't careful. And as we showed in the last episode, Father Rob was not a weak man, but he was a threat to the diocese and their secrets. Some have speculated that Father Rob's death was the result of diabolical interference with his biological system dark magic being practiced against him. Yeah, and Father Rob at first said he didn't get any, and then when I got like the third one, then he confessed, ironically enough, a priest, um, confessed that he had gotten a couple, and he got them, he got, he got them at St. Philomena. Oh. At the, at the church. So they knew where he went. His were, one of his was mailed to him. 
in an envelope. No return address, but it was mailed from Buffalo and it was mailed from the same zip code as the Chancery. These theories seem impossible to believe at times, but in those dark moments, when negative energy feeds on your doubt and anxiety, the thought of prayer can be a light in the darkness. I'm sure we've all been there. And I've turned to prayer producing this podcast, a practice that has ebbed and flowed in my life, evolving and growing out of my Catholic upbringing. I'm not one to say the rosary, and Rachel has her own secret prayer she invented that she has been reciting for years before bed. But I gotta tell you, when we have prayed to Father Joe or Father Rob during this podcast, reaching out to these priests who have passed on, I swear we get responses back. And this week was no exception. A break. An answer to a question Sue and Joe Sr have been wanting since 2012. Up top, we want to say that all parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty, or just may be innocent. And on that note, we'd like to start with parties mentioned in a prior episode. We've done considerable investigating, and yesterday had a huge break. The transfer of Father Joe's body, without his family's knowledge, had to have happened with someone signing off for the family, claiming next of kin. And now, next of kin could have been the diocese. Perhaps they are allowed to do that. Unethical, sure. Illegal, maybe not. But what if someone who worked at the ECMC, the morgue, didn't like Father Joe, and in fact, got in a huge, almost physical fight with him the night before his death. Would he have a reason to perhaps forge the family's signature in order to get Father Joe in the ground as quickly as possible? I'm not accusing. I'm just going down the list of possibilities. The funeral home seemed to genuinely believe the family signed off. Plus, the owner himself was genuinely in grief, as Father Joe was a friend, a good friend of his. And so, I'd like to apologize if any speculation was made on the podcast about Lombardo's funeral home. I think you'll hear in his voice, this does not sound like a man that knowingly helped in the cover-up of his friend's death. He didn't pick up Father Joe from ECMC's morgue. He didn't do the embalming. In fact, as we'll hear later, he didn't enter the embalming room, likely not wanting to see his friend in that state. Hi, is this Joe? Speaking. Hi, Joe. This is uh, Rachel giving you a call back. I just got your voicemail. I I was returning your call from yesterday. Oh, okay. Um, well, the uh, lady I spoke to said that you just had a few questions for me uh, before she could uh, just release any paperwork on... Well, uh, what, what are you looking for? Well, basically, um, Sue Moreno is missing some documents, but it's really her dad that wants them. But 
I feel a little bit embarrassed because she's saying she doesn't know, and it's, it had nothing to do with you guys. Who was at the medical examiner's office that 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 signed him, her brother out? I think that's the thing that she's missing, and she just wants to put into her file. Um, um, I don't have that. It would have been one of our. It would have been one of our licensed funeral directors that were on duty that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would have had a sign release from the family to go there, and the medical yeah. examiner would, and the medical examiner would have that paper. Okay. Anytime someone dies at anytime someone dies at the medical examiner, you need written permission from the family to go there. So okay. we would have we would have brought that paper and then we would have gave it to the medical examiner to do the removal. Now mm-hmm. I know that this happened. Um, after Joe was buried, you know, they still had questions. Mm-hmm. And they called Amagon Funeral Home. Okay. Not our funeral home. They called Amagon Funeral Home to do a disinterment and bring his body to Pittsburgh for another autopsy. So we could tell Mr. Lombardo was surprised, and maybe even a little hurt that he never heard from the Morenos during the exhumation process. He's a stern man, but a sincere man, and he let us know that he continued to donate to Father Joe's foundation for years. He goes on to fill us in on how the checkout process works between a funeral home and a morgue. When a person's at the medical examiner, which Father was, Father Joe was at the medical examiner because of what happened. Yeah. So you need written permission from the family. And there is a release, <coughs> there is a release at the medical examiner signed. But we had written permission. Our person only got mixed up because if you died at Buffalo General or Sisters Hospital, if you gave me verbal permission to go there, I could just go there. Okay. But, but when a body's at the medical examiner, you need written permission from the family. Okay. If you're, oh, looking, no. if you're looking for the release, I would call the medical examiner. As we're going to come to find out, Joe Lombardo was a real friend of Father Joe, and we believe he wanted nothing more than to lay this beloved priest to rest with respect and dignity. I don't know, but can I just ask you one question, you know, just from this is your profession. Why sure. did the medical examiner not return the brain to the body? What, is there a reason for that? Is that a decomposition thing, or is that not standard practice? Um, I'm not... I, I didn't know the brains were not returned. No, um, not I don't know. I don't know why they would have kept that. Um, only maybe because that's where the shot was, and that was yeah, part of the investigation. It would have showed two two shots to the head. Okay, yeah, that's, that's you know, so so maybe they kept it because of that, and that for further investigation. Yeah. Um, but um, but I, I that's a medical examiner's question. And we noticed. Uh, just recently that the handwritten um, cause of death or manner of death or whatever is different than the typed one and it kind of looks like self-inflicted is added later it just says gunshot wound in one in one part and then later it says gunshot wound and then typed above it it says self-inflicted almost like I don't I don't know okay so let me let, let me explain to the best of my knowledge and again this might not be the right answer um, when when the when the medical examiner first, first issued the death certificate, because he has to issue it for us to do the burial, mm-hmm. 
he might have put it down as a gunshot wound because he knew that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But he might have been undecided if it was self-inflicted or a homicide. Yeah. And he probably wanted to look at the autopsy reports before he did that. It's very common that they sometimes come back 30, 60 days later and put a cause of death on it. Oh, I see. Okay. Because because the medical examiner never saw the person. So they're relying on their autopsy reports. Oh, I see. So the medical examiner is so, not the one that would have done the autopsy report? He would have, he would have did it, but like see like they took everything they needed for the autopsy, but to put the autopsy report together might have took like 30 days for results. I see. I see. Because I they oh. they would have they would have been waiting for his blood work to come back. They would have been waiting for a lot of different things. Um, a lot of times, you know, if it wasn't a gunshot wound, they would have put on an IP, investigation pending, mm-hmm. and, they w- and they would have waited for their lab work to come back. But this was okay. obvious that it was a gunshot. Yeah. But what about, do you have a do you have the report of the autopsy? Because I'm curious. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm like them. I, I don't believe that Father Joe did this either. So, okay, you know, I, 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 I mean, I believe what the family believes. I mean, Father Joe was a good friend, and, you know, I, I don't believe it. And there's a lot of things that were being done nasty to him through the bishop mm-hmm. um, prior to the death. So yeah. I, I don't believe it either. But um, do you also have a copy of the Pittsburgh autopsy? Yeah, I have all that. Uh, to be perfectly honest, um, I'm a family friend of theirs now, but yeah. I'm helping I'm helping them solve this case. I'm a uh, I have a true yeah. crime podcast, um, and we, I mean, millions of people those, are. Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, there's there's a lot of priests that like, that don't believe it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish I wish I could think of their names, but there's a lot of priests. I wish I could give you their names to interview because oh, really? they they don't believe it. Um, yeah, yeah, I would. I mean, I, I wish I could think of the priest's names, but I know there's a few different priests that said, you know, that never happened. I mean, uh, Father Joe know. was one of the best people you'd ever want to meet. Oh. <laughs> you well, know, if you, if, if, if you saw him, like, in, if you saw him and um, the next day, mm-hmm. he, he would send a pizza to your house. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's the way he was. That's the way he was. He always ordered his pizzas. Unfortunately, a person who could have told you a lot is his friend Tony Klicka, who owned Mr. Pizza, but Tony has died since. Oh, no. And yeah, Tony would that. tell you. Father Joe called me all the time. He goes, Father Joe would probably send out 20 to 30 pizzas a month to families. That's so nice. You know, I mean, he was, he was spending all of his life savings. Oh, my God. And you know that he, he was the police chaplain? Mhm. But you know, yeah. legally, he was—he was not. Oh, really? He wasn't the police chaplain. They just liked him. He just. Dress? No, he he rode with them in the cars. They loved him. He he always wanted to be there for victims and families to help families. You know, if there was like a shooting like this, a shooting or a car accident or a house that caught fire, he always wanted to be there to console the families. So. Wow. The police looked at him as his chaplain, but he wasn't their assigned chaplain. But he was there than more than any other chaplain. Oh, that's the first time I've heard that. That's actually that yep. says a lot about him. Yep, he was not. If you look it up, he was not the assigned chaplain. They they referred to him as their chaplain, but he was not 
He was not their chaplain through the dais. Wow. You've been it was amazing. Yeah. Did you yeah. did you know Father Joe? No, um, uh, we didn't even hear about the story till after he had passed. Um, I so, have. So a, I gotta tell you a funny thing. I, I met Father Joe like 35 years ago when he first got ordained. Oh my gosh. I, I I didn't know who he was, and but the family wanted him to do a funeral service at the funeral home, and Father mm-hmm. Joe, if you knew him, he, he, well, I'm telling you, he was the nicest guy in the world. But his appearance, he had hair buzz out like Bozo the Clown. Yeah, that's and and he and he had and he had a black sport coat, and he had blue pants, white socks, <laughs> and his black shoes. And I said, "Oh my God, this guy's going to do the service." So he went in to start the service. He wasn't even in there like two minutes. And this is a sad time a family lost a loved one. He had everybody in the room laughing. Oh wow! He had everybody in the room laughing. And then I knew why people always wanted him to do services, because he was a people magnet. And he knew what to say. He had a gift to give a homily and a message, and he had a gift. And after that, I mean, I used to have like four or five requests a month for him for services. You know, I'm going to really try hard because, I mean, this topic, not about Father Joe, but Father Joe was included in the topic. It just came up within the last six months. Mm-hmm. And this priest said, Joe, you know, he didn't do it. We were bringing up other things that were going on in the dais, and Father Joe's just, that came up in the conversation. Oh, I wish where the priest said, he goes, he goes, you know, Father Joe didn't do that. You know, it was something about him being right-handed, left-handed, like. Yeah, he, like, he was, you know, he couldn't have done it. He was, well, his left hand was, um, he was, he was robbed in his rectory and stabbed in his left hand several years prior. He didn't have use of it. And he was also right-hand dominant. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music. A woman who you'll hear from in a minute not only worked at Lombardo's funeral home and did the initial embalming on Father Joe, but she also became a Buffalo police detective two years after. I was extremely nervous to speak to her, but she reveals a lead that furthers this investigation to the moon. She was also extremely gracious and sweet and genuinely interested in following up with Father Joe's case and helping the family. Plus, how cool to be a female detective. Detective Ann. Oh, hi. Hi, Detective Ann. Hi. I'm happy I finally got to reach you. I've tried to call you several times, but I just called at the wrong time. Okay. How are you? I'm good. Um, my name's uh, Rachel O'Brien, and I am working on a case for a podcast about um, the 
death of Father Joseph Moreno. Okay. Uh, you were working at Lombardo's at the time when he, and I, I per some documents, uh, you did his embalming? Yes, I did. Yes. Do you remember anything being suspicious about, did you ever, like, um, when they did a second autopsy on him, they found... Uh, uh, on a second, they did they exhume him and do a second autopsy? Yeah, they exhumed him. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. I yeah, didn't know that. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Cyril West exhumed him. I mean, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm sure you did a great job. But yeah. <laughs> but I was just curious if you noticed anything suspicious or what your feelings were about. Um, I do remember when that did happen that um, the family was, I mean, this was a while ago, right? Like, shit, Mm -hmm. how many years ago was this? Uh, 2012. Okay, yeah. So two years later, I became a cop. So Mm -hmm. it was like around the end of my career, but um, I remember it being very weird and sudden, and the family was asking, like, me a lot of questions about his body, but I, oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that they asked you a bunch of questions. Yeah, they well, because um, I brought them out for their first viewing, and mm-hmm. I remember them, I they did ask me questions about, like, where the bullet hole was on his head, and I remember telling them at the time, but I honestly can't remember. He had an autopsy tech with him, and he he found a second bullet hole. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I honestly couldn't even tell you what side of the head the bullet hole was on. Even I don't even remember that. Um, yeah. I mean, I embalmed seven hundred bodies a year, so his. Yeah. It was a big deal. I do remember that. Um, but I didn't know much about him, and I didn't know much about the situation. I kind of just did my job and went on with it. But I do remember the family asking me about that during the like the wake. Yeah, they usually would have to. Like, if it's something that they don't think they have enough to go against, I don't know if they would reopen it. Um, but that's, yeah. that's above my pay grade. I'm just a local in-house detective. I don't work for, like, homicide or any specialty unit. I just do, like, larcenies yeah. and all the petty crimes. Um, Still pretty cool that you're a female detective, though. I mean, <laughs> yeah, Yeah, I'm the only one in this office, so I guess I'll hold that. I found a photo of you online. You 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 look tiny too. I'm like, gosh, she's putting herself in danger. You saw a, a photo of me. Uh huh. That's how I got where you were at your district or whatever. Am I that Googleable? Uh, um, not. I mean, kind of. Shit. Now I gotta know what picture it is. You. I'll tell you one thing. You can't find a background report on you. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> My background report still says I have a speeding ticket from when I was 16, which I find really rude. <laughs> you did a background check, too? I was trying to find the, your phone number because I, I was not reaching you. in the. I was trying to find, like, a cell phone number uh-huh. um, uh, or a home phone number, which probably would have been rude if I had called um, because I wasn't reaching you at the uh, detective's office, so I just – Thought I'd try to find a phone number, but you, you, I can't find you. Can't find you. Okay, that's, so that's good. good for you. Good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I wasn't trying to like run a, a 
background report. It was just trying to find a phone number. Yeah, no, I was just I was just messing with you anyways. Classic Rachel O'Brien move. Just coming in hot with info she didn't need to share, but just can't help herself. Yeah, I, like I said, I don't know the ins and outs of that. I honestly hadn't thought about that until you called me since. Um... Well, I'm sure you have your own life, I get it. Yeah, no, but I mean, like, it's just crazy how things happen, and then you just forget about them. Yeah, that was that was what, now I, now I remember something about how he was right-hand, it was with his left hand, but he was right-handed. Yes, and his left hand was paralyzed. Oh, I didn't know about that. But I do remember if that's yes. what they were talking about, um, that they thought it was weird because he was right-handed and it was on his left side. Um, can I ask you one last question and I'll let you go I just this is something we've been trying to figure out because um, the ECMC won't tell me do you so and I've also heard different processes of how people end up at funeral homes but do you remember who brought Father Joe to Lombardo's Um, I picked him up from the morgue you picked him up from the morgue Mm -hmm. so how does that work with the sign off I've told I've been told very different things with like when I worked there like I said times might might have changed now but it's still when I was on patrol and we would have you know dead bodies at houses it's all the same protocol as long as if it's a suspicious death we have the medical examiner come out they take pictures mm-hmm. they do their scene investigation and then they remove the body to the morgue Okay. And then the body can only be removed from the morgue once the family has given it can either be verbal or written permission to the funeral home that is going to be taking care of the services. So okay. what would have happened is I would have had a release form from the morgue signed. I don't know who would have signed it, um, but it allowed me to go to the morgue and get the body. And the morgue is different than the ECMC, correct? Uh, the morgue Medical is in, nope, that is the same thing. The morgue is right in ECMC. So we know how Father Joe got from ECMC to Lombardo's funeral home now. And we trust this police detective. And she says that the medical examiner's office would have had to accept a release form signed by the next of kin. So who at the Erie County Medical Center would have forged, or perhaps facilitated on behalf of the diocese, these documents. And let us remind you that Butch Mazur, the priest taking over at St. Lawrence after Father Joe, also happened to be the chaplain at ECMC. So we left off the last time we were in Buffalo. On the night of October 12th, we were at Sue's house, and we had just met with Frank. The day before the 10-year anniversary of Father Joe's passing, on October 13th, 2012. Which happens to be quite a cosmic anniversary in the Catholic world. 105 years earlier, in Portugal, the miracle of Fatima took place. And as we were leaving Sue's that night, after interviewing Frank for hours, 
The clock strikes midnight, and he mentions Fatima. A miracle that Pope Pius XII himself said he witnessed in 1950 and ruled it a true miracle. It's a pretty epic modern miracle that occurred in the 20th century and is recognized by the church, and we find it very peculiar that the dates coincide with Father Joe's passing. The miracle of Fatima started in the beginning of spring 1916. Three Catholic shepherd children living near Fatima, Portugal, reported apparitions of an angel. Then starting in May 1917, the apparitions began to resemble the Virgin Mary, whom the children described as the Lady of the Rosary. The children reported a prophecy that prayer would lead to the end of the Great War, and that on the 13th of October of that year, the Lady would reveal her identity and perform a miracle so that all may believe. Newspapers reported on the prophecies and hundreds of believers began making pilgrimages to the area. The children's accounts were deeply controversial, drawing intense criticism from both local and religious authorities. The children were even briefly taken into custody because the authorities believed the prophecies were politically motivated in opposition to the officially secular First Portuguese Republic established in 1910. The three children were Lucia dos Santos and her cousins Francisco and Jacinta Marto. Keep in mind, I'm paraphrasing a lot of this straight off of Wikipedia, so if I mispronounce something, forgive me. The three children described her as a lady more brilliant than the sun. And when October came, the events of October 13th, 1917 would become known as the miracle of the sun. Estimates between 40 and 100,000 people had journeyed to Fatima to witness the event. According to many, after a period of rain, the dark clouds broke and the sun appeared as an opaque, spinning disk in the sky. It was said to be significantly duller than normal and to cast multicolored lights across the landscape, the people and the surrounding clouds. The sun was then reported to have careened towards the earth before zigzagging back to its normal position. Witnesses reported that their previously wet clothes became suddenly and completely dry, as well as the wet and muddy ground that had been previously soaked because of the rain that had been falling. The Bishop of Lyria declared the events worthy of belief on the 13th of October, 1930. The leader of the Pact of Prophetic Children was Lucia dos Santos, who would go on to become a Carmelite nun and publish memoirs in the 1930s, revealing two secrets that she claimed came from the Virgin Mary, and a third secret that was not to be revealed by the Catholic Church until 1960. Here are the three secrets of Fatima. On the 13th of July, 1917, Around noon, the lady is said to have entrusted the children with three secrets. Two of the secrets were revealed in 1941 in a document written by Lucia at the request of the Bishop of Lyria. When asked by the bishop in 1943 to reveal the third secret, Sister Lucia struggled for a short period. 
being not yet convinced that God had clearly authorized her to act. She was under strict obedience in accordance with her Carmelite life and conflicted as to whether she should obey her superiors or the personal orders she believed were from Mary. However, in October 1943, she fell ill with influenza and pleurisy, the same illness which had killed her cousins, and for a time believed she was about to die. The Bishop of Lyria, Bishop de Silva, then ordered her to put the third secret in writing. Lucia then wrote down the secret and sealed it in an envelope not to be opened until 1960. She designated 1960 because she thought that by then it will appear clearer. The text of the third secret was officially released by Pope John Paul II in 2000. The Vatican described the secret as a vision of the 1981 assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II, which I'm not sure I agree with. I think it's possible that it's a red herring to throw us off the scent of the true happening or what the third secret is actually relating to, as you'll hear just in a second. The first secret. This was a vision of hell which Lucia said they experienced on the 4th of July, 1917. The Virgin Mary opened her hands once more, as she had done the two previous months. The rays appeared to penetrate the earth, and we saw, as it were, a vast sea of fire. Plunged in this fire, we saw the demons and the souls. The latter were like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze having human forms. They were floating about in that conflagration, now raised into the air by the flames which issued from within themselves, together with great clouds of smoke. Now they fell back on every side, like sparks and huge fires, without weight or equilibrium. Amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fright, So that is secret number one. She let them peer into the depths of hell, perhaps to show them that it's real. I don't know how a nine-year-old kid comes up with that with their two cousins, unless they found some psychedelic mushrooms while they were herding sheep, or it actually happened to them. The second secret. It predicted an end to the Great War but predicted a worse one if people did not cease offending God. This second war would be foretold by a night illuminated by an unknown light as a great sign that the time of chastisement was near. To avert this, Mary would return to ask for the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart and the establishment of the first Saturday's devotion. If her requests were heeded, Russia would be converted and there would be peace. If not, Russia would spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the Catholic Church. The vision culminated with a promise that in the end, the Immaculate Heart would triumph. The Holy Father would consecrate Russia to Mary, and a period of peace would be granted to the world. Well, on January 25th, 1938, bright lights, an Aurora Borealis, 
appeared over the Northern Hemisphere as far south as North Africa, Bermuda, and California. It was the widest occurrence of the aurora since 1709. People from Paris to Portugal thought it was a great fire and notified the departments. Sister Lucia indicated that it was the sign foretold and so apprised her superior and the bishop in letters the following day. Just over a month later, Hitler seized Austria and eight months later invaded Czechoslovakia. And well, World War II started. Again, pretty good prediction from a 10-year-old, calling the Second World War before it happens. How or why would a child make up this extremely political prophecy? Consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart? Declare Russia sacred? And if not, there will be another great war? This can be interpreted in so many ways. But I can understand why Pope Pius XII was quick to do just that after the Second World War. There's lots of controversy around the Third Secret. Lucia declared that the Third Secret could be released to the public after 1960. Lucia insisted to them it must be released by 1960, saying that by that time it will be more clearly understood and because the Blessed Virgin wishes it so. Instead, in 1960, the Vatican published an official press release stating that it was most probable the secret would remain forever under absolute seal. This announcement triggered widespread speculation. The New York Times wrote that the speculation over the content of the secret ranged from worldwide nuclear annihilation to deep rifts within the Roman Catholic Church that led to rival papacies. The Vatican did not publish the Third Secret, a four-paged handwritten text, until the 26th of June, 2000. The Third Secret is a vision of death of the Pope and other religious figures, and was transcribed by the Bishop of Lyria, and reads like this. After the two parts which I have already explained, at the left of Our Lady and a little above, we saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand, flashing. It gave out flames that looked as though they would set the world on fire. But they died out of contact with the splendor that Our Lady radiated towards him from her right hand. Pointing to the earth with his right hand, the angel cried out in a loud voice, Penance, penance, penance. And we saw an immense light that is God. Something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it. A bishop dressed in white. We had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, religious men, and women going up a steep mountain. At the top, which there was a big cross of rough-hewn trunks, as of a cork tree. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through a big city, half in ruins and half trembling with halting step. Afflicted with pain and sorrow, he prayed for the souls of the corpses he met on his way. 
having reached the top of the mountain, on his knees at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. And in the same way there died one after another, the bishops, priests, religious men and women, and various lay people of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross, there were two angels, each with crystal aspasorium in his hand, in which they gathered up the blood of the martyrs, and with it sprinkled the souls that were making their way to God. And so that's the third secret, a premonition of this apocalyptic scene of revelation unfolding, which could be interpreted in so many ways. The Catholic Church is saying it foretold the assassination attempt on Pope John Paul in 1981. Like I said, I don't know if I buy that. But so it is. Father Joe's death is in sync with the miracle of Fatima. And some believe the secrets of Fatima are revealing the smoke of Satan. And the date of Father Joe's death is no coincidence. And as we are standing in the doorway of Father Joe's twin sister Sue's living room, and the clock strikes midnight, the coincidence certainly felt like cosmic coordination. October 13th. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Deadly Diocese early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us a little about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.